Welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. I'm your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I have the uh, spectacular Jason McClellan with me. Hello, Jason. Hello, Mr. Spectacular Alejandro. How are you today? Good. Doing all right. Doing spectacular. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, that is that is spectacular in itself. Yeah, I agree. So. Um, we've got a lot going on on this show today. We have uh, Chris O'Brien, which is pretty exciting. He just wrote a new book called Stalking the Herd. And if you're interested in cattle mutilation, you'll definitely want to get it. Because I think really, I think I could say it's probably now the best book on cattle mutilation out there. Uh, of course, there's some people who started this phenomenon a while ago. And uh, they have some really interesting stuff, uh, like Linda Howard or something like that. But um, this is new. So this has all the latest and greatest cases. And uh, that's what's cool about it. So, I mean, up until just recently. So um, it, it's just full of a lot of great stuff. And we're going to talk to Chris about that in just a moment. Um, however, before that, we're going to get into some of the news stories However, before that, I want to mention that last week I posted something I've been working on for months, and I, I've mentioned this uh, on the show, uh, like when we talked a little bit with uh, Mark Pilkington and the guys with uh, Mirage Men, but uh, that's a letter to the Air Force that I had compiled and put together with all of my research on Richard Doty and this period of time where uh, he says he was spreading UFO disinformation. And uh, a lot of the roots to a lot of the big phenomena that we talk about, Majestic 12, uh, Dulce, stuff like this, uh, is all part of these hoax documents that he created. Uh, however, he's also continued to talk about UFO stuff and kind of to, to say these bombastic kind of um, things about these cover-ups and stuff like this. And, and people continue to believe him, even though, you know, I think as you'll see in this, this letter to the Air Force that there's a... He's been lying. Uh, he's changed his stories a lot. So why did why did I write the letter to the Air Force? It's because I did some FOIAs to find out what was the official story behind some of these things that Doty has talked about. And I got a lot of these uh, documents that uh, had told the Air Force's story. Um, so Doty says he was on orders to do this disinformation, um, of course, stuff which is not included in these documents. So his story is contrary to these documents. So I'm asking the Air Force then, you know, why... Uh, you know, was Doty under orders like he said? And if not, you know, how could he be allowed to do all of this uh, hoaxing and creating these documents and everything while he was working for the Air Force? So um, 
you'll have to read this because I, I've got more links to, to documents and data than I think anybody has ever provided on this topic. Tons and tons of links of stuff. Videos you can watch, interviews you can hear that we have done or that others have done. And when you read this, and if you watch Mirage Men, which is a great documentary uh, that's also on this topic, uh, but mostly, you know, just Doty's end of, of what had happened, or at least his what he has to say. Um, it, it makes for a fascinating, you know, story that's really important when it comes to UFOs and the history of UFO research. So take a look at that, and I hope you're compelled to then um, help me try to get an answer from the Air Force regarding all this stuff. I mean, don't you think, Jason, I, they really should say something? You would think so. You would think that they would... Uh whether it's a you know canned response or something that they have prepared, you know, just some mm -hmm. sort of response, but to not respond at all seems kind of strange. It does, and, and you know, someone who's always who's uh, helped me out with this and kind of inspires me to keep going is Colonel John Alexander, and uh, he feels that that's really odd too, and he gets he real surprised that um, they haven't done something. Of, of course, he feels that 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 they should say something as well. So. Um, so take a look at that, and we'll be talking more about that because I'll have uh, interviews coming up here with uh, other people who have uh, looked into all of this as well. So there you have it. Go check it out, the open letter to the U.S. Air Force regarding allegations of UFO disinformation. So now it is time for Jason to feed us some UFO disinformation. Hey. Because I've heard you're a UFO disinformationist. I read it on the Internet. I've seen that on the internet too, so I don't know. I feel obligated to spread disinfo. <laughs> uh, I'll try to uh, to give some real info here, Alejandro, cool. and I'm going to pick uh, a story to talk about here from. Uh, let's see, we you posted it late last week, and I want to talk about this UFO caught on a security camera in Puerto Rico. Ah. It's a pretty interesting video, and you know we see more and more UFO videos from security cameras because. Naturally, security cameras are always rolling, so they're going to capture strange things in the sky if they do appear. And interestingly enough, this also uh, was seen by a guy who was walking his dog. Um, and a lot of people see UFOs while they're walking their dogs because they're outside and, you know, you're kind of waiting for your dog to do their business. And so you kind of, you don't want to stare at them, so you stare at the sky. <laughs> Perfect time to see UFOs. But anyway, this guy, this happened on May 5th of this year and the guy was walking his dog and he noticed this bright light in the sky and it kind of rose in elevation and the witness said that it seemed to stay at the same point for for a few seconds and then shot down at a different angle sort of back at the direction that it came from now again this happened in puerto rico and there's security camera footage of this object in the sky, and you can watch that at openminds.tv. And I'd be curious to hear what other people think about this video. But when I watch this video, um, you know, initially when I watch it, you see this light in the sky, and it looks like an airplane. And, and Alejandro, that's, that's kind of what uh, I think would be the most likely explanation for this video would be an airplane, because when airplanes, as you know, when we see airplanes sort of coming towards a camera or, or towards where you are, um, objects can appear to hover like they're not moving because you can't tell they're moving. They're coming straight at you. And airplanes, when they're coming in, uh, 
to an airport for a landing. They do have their, their flight paths. They come in and then make a turn and then head to a, a particular runway. Um, so that sort of was my initial thought with this, but it does look a little different than your typical airplane in the sky going in for a landing. The Where it comes up and then makes this pretty sharp turn, it seems, uh, seems atypical for an airplane. Yeah, because it starts low, goes up, and then comes down, which uh, if if it is an airplane would be doing some kind of strange maneuver, which is, of course, possible that it's, you know, someone having fun up there or doing some sort of practice maneuvers or something. That's always possible. Yeah. But it's also difficult with uh, perspective to mm-hmm. really understand what's going on with what the true movement of this thing is. It could be a, a trick of perception there. Could be, and then, and that's why, because it moves so nimble, I thought perhaps it could be a remote control uh, sure. plane or something like that. Uh, but it does; it is kind of strange. So uh, it's it's something different, and uh, who knows? Yeah, I mean, it it could be an extraterrestrial pilot there. That <laughs> this one has a, a better, you know, more more plausible extraterrestrial craft, I think, our argument than some of these things that move erratically that, you know, are obviously bugs and things flying around. I don't think those, unless they were drunk aliens, would, would be alien spacecraft, whereas this <laughs> one, I, I, I could see that argument. Yeah. Yeah, so that was a good video, probably the best video or picture from last week, because we did have some other UFO sighting stories, but they were most likely uh, mundane things. One of them, which are beautiful pictures, you know, looked like it was probably um, flares, but uh, did baffle the photographer, who's an experienced photographer, but, um, so the Puerto Rico one was pretty good. I wanted to talk about another sighting from last week, but this one is an obvious hoax, and, uh, I guess, you know, now now we know who, which of us is uh, spreading disinformation. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to be the disinformationist, but, um, you know, I think it's important. Some people, of course, get frustrated when we talk about hoaxes because they're like, they either um, think we're wasting our time or often there are people who are like, that's not a hoax. You're spreading disinformation. That's real. Mm-hmm. But um, there's just a number of things that, that make these, these videos an obvious hoax. But uh, this is the one that where it looks like a UFO attacking the Taliban. And there's these big explosions and everything. And... Uh, this is one thing people don't notice, too. In this video, the still for the video, which you can customly put up a still, you know, when the video is not moving before you play it, it's showing an image. Um, it will choose one automatically, or you can upload what's seen there. The still is more spectacular than any of the scenes in the video. You can tell the still is not taken from the video, plus the perspective is different because you see all this fire and the UFO in the background, whereas there was this explosion and stuff with the UFO in the background, but not to this degree. So this is obviously an engineered image that was put in there to promote this video, but a lot of people believe this video, which is unfortunate because if you do a little bit of work, such as looking at the other videos this person's posted, they've posted a lot of obvious fakes, and it's funny because there's a lot of people, I posted a lot of them, lots of military UFO things, and 
UFOs supposedly attacking the Rangers in Afghanistan, attacking a Navy battleship, attacking the Russian battleships, uh, flying around in the, the Vietnam War, uh, you know, and some people have said, well, those other ones are obvious fakes, but I don't know about the Taliban one, but uh, it's obvious this is kind of the thing that this person does, and all of the stills are the same, where there are like these, in, you know, these photoshopped images that are really spectacular, kind of like a movie trailer or something like this, and I think that's what this site's doing. It's partially probably because they're making money by getting hits. Uh, one of their videos has over a million hits, but uh, I think they're they're also into entertainment and um, you know these are kind of like little mini movies for them and uh, they even talk about where they create a trailer for their upcoming series of more UFO military videos um, but it's a hoax people come on do a little look into it if you don't believe me just from what you're hearing here go to our website and look for all of the details and and things that I point out here on our story but uh, yeah, and a big thing with that video too, and we have that you have that posted in your story, is the actual footage that this was taken from, the uh, actual military explosion that happened, and uh, we've got that video on there that has no UFO, and it's just a mirrored. It, the people who created this video mirrored it; they flipped it and uh, added the UFO. To right, that. right. The the biggest evidence, yeah, is that we have the the obvious the video that uh, with. The, out the UFO. Mm -hmm. But you're right, this this group, I mean, they're, they're very obvious about the fact that this is not real. And you mentioned the, the biggest thing where they put up these uh, sort of trailers and announcements that uh, their next video is coming and another season and things like that. So, yeah, it's just sensational, goofy stuff, and who knows why they're doing it. But uh, they're not, not being shy about the fact that uh, it's kind of over the top and ridiculous. So. Yeah, yeah. Funny stuff. So, yeah, be careful. Be wary of the hoaxes, people, and uh, be, and be wary of all the stories that you're going to see out there because there's still people running crazy with this story mm -hmm. um, and talking about, you know, is this the best evidence? You know, do we have evidence of UFOs attacking the Taliban? And some people just straight out saying, you know, look, why are, you know, UFOs are attacking the Taliban, blah, blah, blah. And some of them are thinking they're helping us or whatever. But, of course, if you look at the rest of their videos, you know, <laughs> they're attacking everybody. So. That's right. So, pretty funny. Um, so, that's the news. Thank you, Mr. Jason. Always a pleasure, my friend. And I do want to mention, you know, um, some of you, I guess some of them may not be aware, Jason, about the magazine. The magazine, oh, yeah. this this current issue that is uh, getting mailed out, and some of you probably already have it. If you don't, you're going to have it extremely soon if you're a subscriber. But it's our last print magazine, so uh, we're not going to be printing the magazine anymore. If you're a subscriber and you know you had more issues due to you, uh, give us a call or email us, and uh, we'll give you either some archives or credit you some store credit or give you your money back, whatever you want. We're going to work with you, so don't worry about that. We're we're not going to take advantage of you and and uh, just keep your money and everything. But uh, a lot of people really love the magazine, and of course we did too. But print is kind of uh, not where it's at. Online is where it's at these days. So uh, things like podcasts and websites, so which will of course continue to have, and you can check that out. And uh, for some of you who had a, a favorite author in the magazine or like some writing. Um, 
some of the stories from certain authors. Don't worry about that, too, because they are sending us some stuff, and uh, we're posting that online. So, for instance, Paul Stonehill, who's a Russian UFO expert, he wrote us a story, uh, a really interesting story on uh, UFOs over Yaisk, and so we have that on the website. Uh, it's a really cool story, kind of how some ufologists helped get this pilot out of trouble. It's a really cool story, so you have to check that out. And then Umberto um, Viziani also wrote us a story on a, an abductee kind of, or a contactee case so that we have on the site, too. So we'll continue to post um, more stories from some of our authors from the magazine on the website, so be sure to check out the website on a regular basis. And we now do Spacing Out back to our weekly schedule, so you can check out our web series, Spacing Out, every single week. Yep, much more Spacing Out. We're spacing out more than we were previously. That's right. Cool stuff. All right, so let's go ahead and talk to Chris O'Brien. I am very excited to have back on the show a researcher of the unusual, Christopher O'Brien. Hello. Hey, Alejandro, how are you, man? Good. How are you doing? Really good. Can't complain. Even if I could, it probably wouldn't help. Yeah, nobody wants to hear that. I, I would just edit that part out of you complaining anyway. <laughs> I don't want to bring people down. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have nothing to complain about. I'm, I'm real happy the book's done and 17 months of uh, hard work uh, is finished, finally. Yay. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, the book. That's what we're going to be talking about here. Stalking the Herd, Unraveling the Cattle Mutilation Mystery. And uh, it's great because I don't know that there's been a book dedicated to just cattle mutilation in a long time. And uh, so this is up to date with some of the latest uh, things that have happened and uh, very thorough. Uh, yeah, it's really kind of starts 30,000 years ago and ends two weeks before I turned in the manuscript. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so we'll get into that. We'll dive right into this book. And then, of course, it was printed by Adventures Unlimited Press, uh, David Hatcher Childress's publishing uh, house, and, and, and which is something you help out with. You work for... for I, I do. I, um, I have a column in the World Explorer magazine, and um, I'm going to be speaking at the Kempton headquarters of AUP on June 14th, this mm -hmm. uh, coming month, and... I'm looking forward to uh, meeting folks out there in Chicago, uh, in the Chicago area, and also uh, South and Kempton. Cool. Yeah, I love the AUP, and I'm, what, what I really like about what he does, too, is reprinting some of the old classics that right, have yeah. just almost, you know, saving them from obscurity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's, uh, David's really, he, he's just very shrewd in how he picks up um, out-of-print titles that are now public domain. Uh, a couple that spring to mind are the uh, Treasure Legend book, Dig Here, which has been very, very popular and, and a good seller for him, mm -hmm. even though the book, I think, was was first uh, published in the 1940s. And The Hollow Earth, which is another very, uh, I think, I interesting book that he picked up. I think that was from the uh, early 60s. And and he he just has a, a knack for picking authors and, and various uh, titles and, and projects that, that authors are working on. And, and he has a very eclectic catalog, which I highly recommend. And he's published my last three books. So, um, you know, I've had a, a, a good working relationship with him. There have been some knocks in the past on, on uh, some of the lack of uh, copy editing and that sort of thing. But with Stalking the Herd, I, 
got my own editors, and uh, I had three different editors go over the book with a fine-tooth comb, and I'm, I'm proud to say that uh, it's, it's about as tight as you can make it. Cool. Yeah, I haven't ran across any issues looking through it. Good. Um, great book, and it looks beautiful, and that's one of the cool things he does, too, because uh, unfortunately, you know, the paranormal field, they don't always do themselves a service with uh, the way they package their books or, or the, the way they choose their covers. Almost, almost, often, they're really amateurish and uh, yeah. just kind of hurts the marketability, but luckily, you know, uh, it's important, and you want it to, the book to... Uh, reflect, you know, the hard work and the great work inside. Right. Well, I was, I was, uh, I pretty much uh, had complete control over the entire process. I did the cover. Uh, I had some help a little bit for the back cover, but but I did some uh, some neat title page uh, watermarks on on each of the chapters, and and uh, it does have quite a number of photographs. And I tried to keep as many of the gruesome uh, mutilation photographs uh, to a minimum. The ones that I did put in there, I think, were important cases that that refute, in many uh, ways, the skeptic debunker assertions that all these cases are obvious scavenger or predator kills with scavenger action. And there's quite a number of photographs in there that, um, that you just can't explain with, with that very, um, I think, convenient, one-size-fits-all dismissal. <laughs> mm-hmm. That uh, that we investigators have been struggling against uh, for quite a number of years, and also I include uh, some uh, veterinary pathology reports and uh, you know necropsy reports and other things that that don't leave any uh, room for for uh, interpretation in terms of the types of of results uh, that have been found in quite a number of of scientific examinations of these animals and. Again, it it just refutes and flies in the face of that offhand dismissal that skeptics and debunkers have been throwing at this mystery for uh, forty plus years. Mm-hmm. Speaking of uh, being lost to obscurity, <laughs> one of the people, the person who does your introduction, David Perkins. Now, yeah. I lived in Colorado. I used to go down to the to the San Luis Valley, which, of course, you're you're kind of the the expert in the mysteries of the San Luis Valley. But uh, David Perkins is a really interesting guy. I always love talking to him. Uh, I'm glad I got to know him. And maybe you can explain a little bit about uh, what he does in uh, his work. Well, yeah, and that's, that's a, I'm really glad you brought that up. Uh, David has written the forewords to all my books, um, and he wrote the introduction for Stalking the Herd. I met David early on in, in the spring of 93. I was very, very fortunate to uh, to strike up an instant friendship. Uh, we've been very, very close friends for 20-plus years now, and he's, he's really uh, been my mentor. Uh, he has probably influenced my thinking more than any other uh, person in the field. Um, Jacques Vallée, of course, uh, was very influential in, in, in my thinking early on before I met David and John Keel, and and others, but but when I met David, I, I really got a, a, a chance to to learn from somebody who is an incredibly creative thinker, a very very uh, smart, brilliant man. Uh, he is a master's from Yale University, uh, just super on the ball, and he's always looking at things from angles that most people don't consider. And mm-hmm. You have to be open-minded and out of the box when you when you study these subjects that we're all so interested in. And 
And David really taught me basically how to analyze and how to think. And also, he's an incredibly good researcher. He he helped uh, just unsung hero. He spent hundreds and hundreds of hours of his own time helping me with uh, the research and stalking the herd. And we came up with so much compelling information. I, we didn't even have room to put it in the book. The book's already 600 pages. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we have another two, 300 pages that didn't make the book that are going to kind of form the basis of a follow-up book that's going to analyze the data that I present in Stalking the Herd. So Stalking the Herd is like throwing the mud against the wall, and David and I are going to co-author a book that <laughs> kind of interprets and, uh, and analyzes the, what sticks on the wall. So cool. it's been very, very important. So this is kind of like the history and the historical, um, you know, putting it down, uh, chronicling the whole uh, event, and then the book on the analysis is up and coming. Correct. We're, we've already started working on it. And what's important for people to understand is that over the many years that these cases have been reported, especially since the early to mid-70s, there have been a number of, of field investigators and researchers that have amassed quite a bit of data on their own. But until stocking the herd, all these databases were stovepiped and, and they were, have never been put together in one place. And it's only when you look at this whole thing in its totality, when you really have a sense of all the different, how all the different databases, when they are coalesced together, it's just an overwhelming amount of data and case histories. And it's just, I think it's slam dunks. Again, any sort of one-size-fits-all answer, whether it's uh, Linda Howe and her, her idea that ETs are completely responsible for this or... Um, some people, you know, put the the onus on the government, uh, possibly uh, monitoring mad cow disease. Uh, others uh, have talked about occultists and ritual crime, and of course the debunkers say it's all scavengers. But you know, each one of these uh, particular theories has uh, quite a bit of data to support it. But when you look at the data that refutes it, uh, there's quite a bit more. Uh, so. It appears to me that this is a much more complicated scenario than has uh, you know people have thought uh, for many years, and there are no one size fits all answers to explain these cases. Mm-hmm. Now, and I, I'll mention it too, just so people can uh, get an idea. Greg Bishop also uh, he wrote the foreword, which I think is really interesting too. And uh, I think people would associate him with Dulce and everything, but I don't think they realize he he worked a lot with. Or spoke with Gabe Valdez, who was yep. the state. He's good friends. Mm-hmm. Gabe. So, who was a state police officer who um, did, I guess, as far as an official law enforcement um, person, he probably did the most research in this field. Well, he did. I think over the years uh, he stuck with it. You do have some sheriffs in the 70s and 80s out on the front range of Colorado, Tex Graves. Uh, for instance, uh, Keith Wolverton, uh, who's a captain in charge of mutilation investigations in Montana during the 70s. They also uh, did a lot of hard work, but Gabe kept at it. And uh, he eventually ended up working for the National Institute of Discovery Sciences as a field investigator. And he went around in the late 90s into the early 2000s investigating cases for NIDS. And uh, Gabe... Gabe, I think, uh, well, as you know, uh, in fact, I think you guys had him on your show just mm-hmm. a sh- uh, less than a week before he passed away, right. which I found uh, compelling because he, he did kind of hint around that there were some things that he hadn't discussed uh, before publicly. Right. 
And uh, of course, his son uh, Greg has has come up with a a very very good look at his dad's case files uh, in a book called uh, Dulce Base, and uh, which I recommend uh, highly. And you know, Gabe again, I think uh, was very conservative in in the way he looked at uh, at his investigative work, being you know a, a state patrolman uh, for many many years in New Mexico. And um, you know, I met Gabe way back, uh, almost twenty years ago, and. And he was very instrumental in helping me formulate my investigative uh, protocols and techniques, as as uh, well as uh, Linda Howe, who um, I worked with uh, very closely for a number of years. She really uh, took me to school on how to properly interview folks, um, and um, you know how to document uh, you know exchanges with witnesses and ranchers and law enforcement. And and another person that really must be uh, mentioned in the same uh, sentence here is is, is Tom Adams. Tom was, uh, for many years, considered the preeminent expert uh, on the mutilation phenomenon. Uh, Tom and David uh, were the first people that Linda went to in 79 when she first started uh, covering the story for the TV station she worked at in Denver. And then, subsequently, A Strange Harvest, or documentary, came out. And uh, Tom Adams uh, amassed an incredible amount of data. I rely heavily on his work in this book. Uh, he was very meticulous in, in, in networking and documenting. Uh, just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cases and he disappeared uh, in 1999 no one has seen or heard from him in 15 years uh, he, he didn't show up at his best friend's funeral uh, nobody's we only know of one person that's talked to him and it's this particular investigative realm of the cattle mutilations has a very high attrition rate uh, if you go down the list of people that were looking into this in the 70s and 80s, uh, very few of us are, are left. Um, of course, I came along a little later in the early 90s, but a lot of people, Ted Oliphant, who was a police uh, officer down in Fife, Alabama, investigated almost 100 cases. He has totally uh, backed away from the field, doesn't want to have any contact with anyone about mutilations. Uh, there have been others. Peter Jordan uh, in New Jersey uh, investigated these uh, cases for many years. He absolutely won't talk about it anymore. It, it does have a high burnout rate, and I've been very fortunate. I've been able to keep my uh, sanity and, and uh, you know, my uh, my paranoia and uh, <laughs> fear levels uh, have have long ago been uh, dealt with. And and it's just it, it's a tough job. I'm really the only person that had access to all this data, and so I I kind of felt a responsibility to. Uh, to really bite the bullet, sit down, took me 17 months to write this, and, and really finally get the first comprehensive book about this particular mystery. Um, there's been very few books written over the years about mm -hmm. it. Most of them have been very tunnel vision, uh, and have blinders on, looking at exactly one particular theory, trying to prove a particular theory. I'm, I really attempted to the best of my ability to be as objective and open-minded about this as, as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the things you do, which I appreciate, and you know, we spent a few minutes talking about the people who have been um, involved with all of this, but that's important, and that's one of the great things about the book is that um, you are talking about other people's works, the people who have done important things in this field, which is important to remember some of these people so they don't right. get lost to obscurity. And right. and a lot of times researchers will talk just about the facts but forget to mention where that data comes from. Yeah, yeah um, I stand on the shoulders of giants, people that spent decades looking into this, and Unfortunately, because they all fall away at different times, 
their data uh, it gets suspended in limbo. And mm -hmm. uh, it was very, very fortunate that I was able to to gather up all these various databases. Uh, Tommy Bland is another one who's been uh, is quietly working on this mystery for many, many years. And and I really do uh, do an, uh, you know have a uh, a debt of gratitude that that must go out to these folks. Mm -hmm. Now you talked about the high rate of burnout, and I wanted to touch on that for a second because I've certainly recognized that in this field too. And uh, I know with David talking with David Perkins, I guess you're right. I hadn't really thought so much about the fear factor, but there certainly is one. But another thing that seems to be uh, contribute to that burnout is the enigmatic nature of the phenomena it's yeah. just so it's kind of like the skinwalker ranch which people are familiar with it just seems to be the trickster of course is a thing that uh, theme that comes up a lot it uh, seems to be one step ahead of researchers all the time yeah. yeah absolutely and you know when you're when you're dealing with uh with horrific death uh, of this nature, and of course, I'm, I'm assuming most of your listeners, if not all your listeners, know what a cattle mutilation is. It's a head of livestock, not only cows, but uh, deer, elk, bison, sheep, goats, pigs, uh, almost any warm-blooded animal that you can imagine, seals, dolphins. Uh, there have been thousands of half-cats found around uh, urban areas and suburban areas around the West. Uh, this is an all-pervasive uh, phenomenon that but cattle do make up a, a sizable percentage, probably in excess of 90% of cases of cattle. And they're found with no apparent cause of death. Uh, there's no uh, evidence uh, generally at the crime scene, although it's not always uh, the case. Uh, and what's horrific about it is, is soft tissue organs, the reproductive organs, uh, an eye. Oftentimes uh, the tongue is removed from deep down in the esophagus with the the mandible flesh off the jaw cleanly excised and removed and these parts are gone and there's no generally no blood there's no other physical evidence at the site and you know ranchers are in business to make money they see uh, dead animals all the time uh, two percent of all uh, cattle uh, die every year and from attrition from from just you know dying natural deaths or, or uh, from poison plants from predators whatever but they they know what they're looking at and for Debunkers to say that this is all just a case of media-induced hysteria, I think, is a little disingenuous. I do think the media does tend to, um, you know, make amateurs uh, go out and see cattle and not know what they're looking at and report them as mutilated. And there are quite a number of cases, obviously, that that are misidentified. I'll be the first to admit that. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't explain uh, anywhere near the amount of cases that we're we're dealing with here. And and when you're going out and looking at thousands of pounds of physical evidence, having some Vicks vapor rub under your nose because of the smell, and, mm -hmm. and dealing with anguished ranchers and, and puzzled law enforcement, you can only do that so many times before it starts to kind of affect you. And, you know, out of the 200 or so cases that I personally investigated or researched, uh, you know, in my time in the valley there and in, uh, down in northern New Mexico, um, I got to a point where where I really, in the late 90s, when, when the cases uh, inexplicably ceased, um, I really was very, very happy about that. I, <laughs> it's the worst, my least favorite thing to do is go out and uh, investigate uh, thousands of pounds of rotting flesh. It, it's, just not, it's just not for everybody. <laughs> I, right. I, don't, I don't see even understand how I was able to do it uh, for so long. And, and it does have a... I think it impacts you on on your psyche and on deep levels 
primal levels that uh, if you're not really grounded and you don't, you know, you, you're able to compartmentalize uh, these kind of primal feelings, uh, you can uh, get burnt out from it uh, fairly, fairly uh, intensely, mm-hmm. shall we say. Well, you know, uh, it makes me think of a couple of things. I've I've gone out once to go look at uh, an animal uh, with Chuck Zukowski. It was the first one he did. We went out together, and uh, like you said, I mean, there's a I, there was excitement about going and doing it at first, uh, but you get there and it's so smelly and it it's so uh, disgusting. But you know what else would hit me so I can see how doing that often would be difficult and I would be hesitant to do it again. But what else hit me is you do have in this field, which is interesting, kind of a, somewhat of a, an a, a expert to cattle deaths already kind of um, there on the scene with a rancher. I thought that's what was interesting because you've got these ranchers. This was in southern Colorado, very rural. All it is is ranchers out there. Uh, it's the rancher himself. Of course, ranchers are stopping by to see what the hell we're doing. and But they are all very used to seeing animals die. And yeah. they're very skeptical people. Mm-hmm. So when you have these ranchers baffled, I think that speaks uh, volumes to to these uh, strange deaths. Yeah, it does. And, you know, I think that there's uh, a lot of misconceptions out there about uh, the unusual livestock death phenomenon. I I think that there's, um, you know, some pop culture sort of, uh, (laughs) I don't know, axioms, I think, that have been coined over the years. You know, laser cuts, uh, cookie cutter cuts, uh, drained of blood. Uh, These types of terms are now part of the culture um, mm-hmm. uh, anybody who knows anything about this particular mystery and and I think one of the things that I set out to do was not only to look at how we have educated ourselves about this and how the media has grabbed a hold of it and how certain investigators have have touted particular theories that have really because they haven't been challenged over the years uh, they've become part of the lexicon and mm-hmm. You know, I think the book really does a good job at backtracking back to where these memes in culture, you know, a gene is to biology what a meme is to culture, and these memes have sprung up that have tried to explain these cases, uh, whether it's ETs, the government, cultists, uh, misidentified scavenger action, and David Perkins and I spent a lot of time backtracking to where these particular theories uh, originated and who originated them. And it's very, very interesting when you go back into the early 70s before this was a huge major news story and you see the very underpinnings of how these theories uh, were evolved and and disseminated out to the public. And one of the things that I I find very interesting is early on, people like uh, uh, J. Allen Hynek, uh, Jerome Clark, uh, and and others, uh, ufologists at the time, they really wanted to disassociate any possible connection with UFOs and these, these unexplained livestock deaths. And so they were the, some of the ones that really first started promoting this idea of Satanists and, and occultists, mm-hmm. uh, which I find very interesting. And, and when you look at the process that uh, unfolded back in 71, 72, 73, uh, it's very interesting to see how these particular theories uh, grew legs and, mm-hmm. and you know, gain some traction, especially within the law enforcement community and the media when you're dealing with occult 
potential occult crime. And then, of course, the E.T. element has always been there since the granddaddy of all mutilation cases really is the Snippy the Horse case, which occurred in September 67 in the San Luis Valley. Uh, one of the, the major quotes from that case from the owner of the horse was, flying saucers killed my horse. So we've, we've always had that meme there. But it's people like Linda Howe and, and Chuck uh, Zukowski who have really identified elements of some of these cases that can't be explained with prosaic explanations. And the automatic assumption on their part is that this must be uh, ET derived, uh, uh, an ET-derived mystery. And, and I, you can't factor um, aliens out. You can't factor some sort of non-human intelligence out. There is an element there that cannot be explained. However, I think a vast majority of cases uh, appear to be uh, probably done by human groups, not one, not two, uh, possibly three or four human groups with various agendas. Uh, we've, we find some very interesting patterns. Uh, there's trends uh, to these waves of cases as they unfold, especially in the 70s. Uh, and I really spent a lot of time going through the case files and pulling up the cases that best illustrated how all the different theories kind of mesh together and they all have a certain amount of validity, yet they all are invalid with the amount of data from the other uh, cases. So it, it's, it's subtitled Unraveling the Cattle Mutilation Mystery on Purpose because it's a Gordian knot that you have to carefully unweave the strands to, to gain any sort of uh, clarity and headway. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Uh, I love that quote, and I was actually going to uh, mention that uh, later where you say that, you know, uh, where all the evidence... Um, point to the prosaic answers are not the answer, but at the same time, it unravels the other theories that people have as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, the enigmatic nature of the phenomena is just, and I think that can be frustrating for people, but it's what I love about, uh, and what I think is interesting, first of all, I love that you go and you get to the roots of where these memes came from in these theories. I, I love that aspect of the book too I thought that was really cool and I found it interesting you know that the stuff you found with Heineck but these luminaries in the field like Valet and Heineck it frustrated people when they said this but kind of, kind of to your point just because it's unknown doesn't mean it's aliens all the time yeah. and that's yeah. something they began to say uh, in, in the past it's funny because there's a story that just came out this week you know, with the Malaysian Flight 370, we right. can't find it, and the polls are that 10% of the people think that it could be aliens, and of course in our field you get a lot of that. But it's it's kind of close-minded uh, of this field. Just because we don't yeah. know what it is <laughs> doesn't mean it's aliens. Yeah. I like the, those uh, pictures of Giorgio's uh, Sukhlitz online. Exactly. It, it must be aliens, you know. Uh, you know, it... We, like I said, we cannot factor that particular explanation out. But we can't factor uh, out any of the other explanations. Well, what about all the hundreds and hundreds of helicopter sightings that have been reported? Mm -hmm. What about animals that have been found shot with firearms and mutilated? Mm -hmm. What about the waves of rustling in Iowa in 72 where hundreds and hundreds of cattle were disappearing uh, amidst these waves of mystery helicopters? And mutilation cases were... Uh, actual gun battles occurred between ranchers and, and crews above, uh, aboard helicopters. And wow. in one case, uh, there was a team on the ground that, that was firing at the rancher as well wow. as from, uh, from the uh, helicopters. So you don't, when, when you, you know, read about these cases, 
you don't always get all the information. And mm -hmm. there, there does seem to be, in my mind, a lot of cherry-picking going on, mm -hmm. touting cases and you know, featuring cases that only conform to a, one particular uh, conclusion. And you need to look at this um, as any paranormal phenomenon. You need to look at it uh, with an open mind as objectively as possible, and, and you can't factor anything in or out, and you can't discard data that's intellectually dishonest uh, mm -hmm. to not deal with all the data. Just because it doesn't conform to your theory doesn't mean if you ignore it, it'll, it'll go away. <laughs> mm -hmm. Gabe Valdez, for instance, you know, a state police officer who investigated these for decades, uh, mostly in northern New Mexico. I guess he did some investigations in southern Colorado, he said, mm -hmm. but uh, um, he was, there's just no doubt in his mind. This is human. This is a secret government um, project. He just had no doubt. He felt he had an abundance of evidence that supported Yeah, he them. did. Uh -huh. So do I. So getting into the book, because a lot of this, everything we're talking about, just for the people uh, listening, all of this helicopter stuff and everything is in this book. But another cool thing, I just love how comprehensive you were here, and I think it does pertain, is that you begin... The first chapter is called Holy Cow, which, of course, uh, um, mirrors your, your wit. But um, <laughs> you talk about the importance of cows in history. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's a fascinating subject. Of, you know, I've always had an interest in, uh, in mythology and in uh, the birth and, and uh, the growth and spreading of, of religious belief systems. And some of your most uh, earliest and... and and first documented belief systems centered around bull and cow worship. Um, one of the things that I found very compelling, for instance, uh, in researching the history of, of bovines' relationship with humans, was that they did a, a, a French team did a DNA uh, study that came out a year ago, uh, March. And in that study, they came to a, the startling conclusion that Every head of cattle on the planet, which represents uh, roughly about one and a third billion cattle on the planet, seem to have all been derived from a single herd of 80 animals uh, that, that were domesticated in northern Iran about uh, 10,500 years ago. And this is right in the same area where you have the first, uh, and during approximately the same time period, we have the first domestication of grain, the first distillation of alcohol, uh, for instance, and the first urban centers. Um, all sprung up, and all these things kind of burbled along uh, at approximately the same, you know, thousand-year time period. And you have to understand that that there were no such things as cattle as we know them today back then. They were uh, cattle are derived from aurochs, which are a now extinct massive beasts that could be ten, twelve feet at the shoulder, weigh over three thousand pounds, a wild, ferocious animal. And you know, I kind of scratched my head and thought, well. Maybe the only way they were able to go out and steal babies and start domesticating, uh, you know, out the wildness and, and domesticating in, um, you know, more docile behavior is if they they got, you know, totally crocked on a jug of, of beer or, you know, a couple of flagons of wine and, and they're kind of nudging each other going, you know, that, that auroch doesn't look too bad, you know, it doesn't look too mean or too big. Let's go steal that baby. You know? <laughs> and. And uh, just the, the amount of uh, courage it would have taken for, mm. er, you know, these early uh, uh, ranches, if you will, to, to attempt to, to capture and contain these animals, it, it just must have been uh, uh, incredibly challenging. And, 
when you start to trace the history of religious belief that sprung up around bulls and cows, uh, it's interesting to note that the bull worship became a solar, kind of a sun god worship, and, and seemed to kind of head to the west, whereas the lunar sort of uh, cow worship tended to go to the east, where today, you know, sacred Brahma cattle, for instance, are still revered in, in, in India. And one of the things I found very intriguing is I cannot find a single case of a Brahma cow bull still or, or, or calf that has been found and reported in a mutilated condition, and not one case in India, for instance. Hmm. Uh, so as you progress down uh, forward in history from, uh, you know, the Gobleki Tepe, Katahuyuk, and some of these early urban centers uh, in Mesopotamia, and uh, then into the Minoan culture, which was totally based on, on bull and cow worship, uh, mostly bull worship. And then you look at the role of, of cattle in, in the Mithra cults, which vied for dominance in, uh, in the early uh, part of the first century in Rome and how the Mithra cults were, were based on the bull, and Christianity, for instance, was based on, on the lamb. I, I guess it was cheaper to sacrifice lambs as opposed to bulls, which were much more expensive. Uh, and, and there's some interesting theories about how Christianity was able to uh, dominate uh, the Mithra cults because of their reliance on uh, cattle worship. So I do spend a, a good deal of time looking at the Greeks, looking at the Egyptians, looking at some of the African belief systems of the Nur and the, the Maasai and the, the, the Dinka peoples in northern Africa and eastern Africa, and, and how, how cattle worship has devolved into this unceremonious slaughter of cattle at 400 an hour on these yeah. massive feedlots and pumping 80% of the antibiotics used in America going to cattle. I think it's 60% of the growth hormones going to cattle. And, and seeing how our holy relationship with cattle has devolved into very, uh, you know, unceremonious, ritualized uh, industrial slaughter. Mm -hmm. And you've also got in here, uh, in your figures, a picture from Al Algeria that uh, you question, is this perhaps the first picture of a cattle mutilation? Yeah, yeah, really intriguing. Uh, this is part of the Tassili frescoes from Algeria. That particular uh, image, I think, is about 5,000 years old, and it, it only shows a part of the fresco. Uh, there's a large herd of cattle that are drawn on the, uh, on the fresco in the original. I only use the ending portion of it at the head where the humans are. And there appears to be a mutilation in progress. And I, I do a blow-up of that particular section of the fresco, and it, it shows a figure... Uh, looking like it's pulling out the rear end of a cow that's lying on its back, and there's one ghostly-looking, alien-looking being <laughs> that seems to be cutting around the jaw, and there's a leg sitting there that's been uh, cut off uh, in the picture. And and if you look at the actual other figures in there, there's there's little like little brothers pulling back uh, older brothers from getting involved in mm -hmm. in uh, in attacking the herd or doing whatever they're they're doing. And uh, I just find it very, very compelling that those images uh, show what looks to be the, the disfigurement um, of, of a head of livestock. Yeah, pretty strange. Then you also then, um, uh, you know, it's interesting, you, you talked about Snippy, and that was kind of, a lot of people think of that as the first... Um, mutilation. It's kind of like Betty Hill, what a lot of people think about that is the first abduction, but there's yeah, but it's, stuff it's prior not. to that. Um, no, it's not. Well, my, the earliest case I can find documented is 1606 
that was written up in the, the records of the court of James I of, of England, right when Shakespeare was writing Macbeth and the, the guy Fox had just been cut in four pieces and sent to the ends of the realm, ten days later is this very enigmatic uh, quote from the records of uh, James I. And, and it says that hundreds of animals, a uh, hundred animals, uh, uh, sheep were found in one, one sheep uh, herd, uh, strangely slain, missing uh, parts, but the meat and the and the, uh, and the and the wool was left behind, and uh, other, many other cases were happening around London. Not as many as a hundred, but some almost. So we're talking hundreds of animals are being mysteriously slain in 1606, and uh, the way the the quote ends is is is, is quite quite interesting. Uh, I love the the uh, the quote here. I'll, I'll just find it here real quick. Uh, it's uh, very, very compelling uh, to me when you read it. 10th February, 1606. The minds of men are much troubled with a strange accident lately fallen out, which yet by no means can be discovered about the city of London and some of the shires adjoining. Whole slaughters of sheep have been made, in some places to number a hundred, in others less, where nothing is taken from the sheep but their tallow and some inward parts, the whole carcasses and fleece remaining still behind. Of this sundry conjectures but most agree that it tendeth towards some fireworks. <laughs> Weird. I love the way they wrote back then, but yeah. But it tendeth toward fireworks. What the heck is that <laughs> yeah, supposed to be? What the hell? So, you know, I'm I'm pretty proud that uh, I was able to uh to to dig up such an early case. And then yeah. of course we have cases from the early 1800s, uh cases from the late 1800s, uh around the turn of the century. Uh, 1902, 1905, 1920, down in Australia. Uh, there's uh, cases uh, possibly in the 40s uh, in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, there's cases from the late 30s of, of hogs being uh, discovered mutilated in Missouri. Um, I have a case from the late 40s of an elk mutilation in Washington State. And now, I do list out all these cases, which are all before the Snippy case of 67. Right. Were some of these uh, descriptive enough, the reports... Uh, to see, you know, that it was very similar to uh, the the mutilations in the 60s and since where, you know, similar um, pieces were removed. Yeah, yeah. John Keel and Ivan Sanderson, for instance, uh, while Keel was investigating the Point Pleasant area and then up into uh, southern, uh, southwestern Pennsylvania, uh, they encountered uh, quite a number of cases uh, of, of cattle mutilations and, and other animals. And uh, based on their descriptions, it sounds very, very similar to, to your standard, uh, you know, classic mutilation. And uh, very some interesting stories, too. Of course, with Keel, you never know, you know, where the <laughs> truth ends and, and maybe a little bit of good storytelling begins. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, with Sanderson, Ivan Sanderson, he was a very, uh, he was a real straight shooter. And he was along on, on a number of these investigations and concurred with Keel about about uh, these cases. So, you know, we're looking at uh, 66, 67, uh, just before Snippy. There's some cases uh, up in Canada, uh, just within weeks of the Snippy case, that um, have UFOs uh, reported and uh, that are very intriguing. Uh, a couple of horse cases, some cattle. So, you know, we do see these cases uh, in South America. There was an outbreak on the Canary Islands, down in Puerto Rico. Of course, I mentioned Australia already. A lot of sheep cases uh, still going on uh, around um, Shrewsbury and in the Welsh border in western uh, the western UK. 
the animal field uh, pathology unit. Uh, Philip Hoyle has done great work over the years. David Caton over there. Um, uh, Richard T. Hall is another one who's looked into this. And, of course, Tony Dowd, uh, the famous uh, detective, uh, you know, was really involved and wrote uh, some very good books uh, where he details out a lot of his cases. So this is a worldwide phenomenon. We've had uh, a large number of seals being found with these really weird uh, spiral cuts that go hmm. from their headless bodies all the way down in a spiral to their tail uh, in the Orkney Islands, uh, way north of England uh, in the North Sea. We have uh, dolphins washing up with identical uh, mutilations uh, in the south of France. Uh, there's been dolphin mutilations recently within the last two years down on the Gulf Coast. Uh, in a, you know, these, these hundreds and thousands of, of, you know, domestic cats that have been found clipped in half, like with a giant pair of scissors, and right. the, the rear end is missing. There's, Linda Howe has done a really admirable job of making sure that these cases are documented, that, that they're reported on. She's one of the few people that has really taken the challenge and, and really attempted to document these cases, and I really I, I thank her for her hard work in that. And, uh, you know, we need more people who are willing to get involved in this and, and dovetail with, with ranching organizations and law enforcement. Uh, Chuck Zukowski is very enthusiastic. He's a very good field investigator. Uh, Margie Kay is someone else uh, out in Missouri who's doing some good work and has been covering uh, recent cases. Uh, you know, it's it's a, a really tough job and it's a thankless job, but, but somebody's got to help these ranchers. And, you know, you look down in South America in the last 12 years, they've had thousands of cases that have occurred down there that most people here have never heard about. Mm-hmm. had one case where a 60,000-gallon stock tank, you know, a watering tank, was mysteriously drained overnight, no water anywhere, <laughs> just drained, and 19 mutilated cows were found inside the tank. Wow. <laughs> so, so, you know, I mean, when you, if you start looking and you really start digging, it's amazing what, you, what kind of dirt you're going to uncover. So weird. And then the golden age, of course, happened, uh, snippy, late 60s, and then the 70s. Uh, all of a sudden, not only does it, does it kind of catch fire uh, in the southern Colorado northern New Mexico area, but uh, um, a congressman got involved, Harrison Schmidt and the FBI, and everybody got involved, and I know this is an important um, period, well, because this thing came to the forefront, uh, a lot of researchers, Gabe Valdez got involved during this period of time, um, mm-hmm. but uh, also this is where then it kind of, uh, the public image of the phenomena was framed uh, in, a, in this period of time. Yeah, that's true. And in, in the Rommel report, which came out in June of 1980, was a complete whitewash of it. Many people have equated the Rommel committee to mutilations uh, uh, as the Condon committee uh, kind of whitewashed UFOs uh, in earlier in the in the late 60s. One of the Condon cases, case number 32, was Snippy the Horse, by the way, which he he poo pooed and said, "Oh, there's nothing to see here, folks. Move along." Um, the Rommel report was conducted over a six-month period where they investigated about 80-some-odd cases. And at the time, there were no real official cases happening in New Mexico. These were mostly, if not all, just uh, you know, naturally, uh, you know, d- cows that died naturally and then were disfigured by, by scavengers. So, of course, he's going to come up with, a, you know, with this debunker disclaimer that all these cases obviously are scavengers. And, and Gabe Valdez uh, and Manuel Gomez and Edward Gomez, they said, well, 
they never came up and checked out any of my animals when when, I, when they were hot and heavy, and I was losing them left and right. Uh, so, you know, I think Rommel made statements to David Perkins and others that he's going to put the the lid on this and and totally you know debunk this thing. And this is before he even started uh, doing the work. And 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 Condon, you know, there's some controversy that Condon may have had the agenda of of debunking UFOs uh, as his goal. Uh, before he even did his uh, his uh, study with his team, so you know it's it's the kind of thing that once you have a good plausible uh, deniability thing going on, and, and some people of authority say, "Oh, this is all just a bunch of BS, and there's nothing to see here," then the media tends to to jump on it and breathe a sigh of relief, and and they they jump on the side of the conservative view of this, and and people then that's that's what they're what they hear. And it takes the efforts of someone like a Linda Howe or a Tom Adams or, or myself or, or uh, Gabe and, and Chuck and, and others and Margie to really keep the focus on this and make sure that people understand that this is a very real mystery and you cannot debunk the, all these cases. Sure, maybe some of them, but there's a lot of legitimate cases. I mean, Jacques Vallée mentioned a case uh, that happened in Weld County, probably the hardest hit of all counties uh, up in the northeastern corner of, of Colorado, where an autopsy was done on, on a cow, and the vet was, was absolutely amazed when he cut into the, the milk bag, uh, the udder of the animal, which appeared to be normal, and it was perfectly packed with sand. Hmm. Now, now, how do you explain that? Yeah, you know, really I've had weird. cases where brains have been removed without the 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 membrane. Uh, nothing in a dry brain case. No break into the cranium. No indication there ever was a brain there. We had one case down in northern New Mexico where it appeared the spinal cord had been excised out of a spine. Hmm. You know, so there's enough, I think, uh, of compelling evidence to suggest that. That uh, you know the Rommels and the uh, you know the James uh, Randys and the the other debunkers out there uh, they're wrong. You cannot debunk all these cases, and I think my book proves that. Mm-hmm. So some of the ideas uh, kind of came out of that as well. Like for instance, uh, the ideas of extraterrestrial involvement. Um, like you said, came from Snippy Case, and and uh, you also mentioned I think it was a the hoaxing uh, hoaxer. I forgot how it was uh, mentioned, but like this this radio broadcast or something that you had read about that mm-hmm. yeah. uh, became really popular and kind of like uh, yeah, it was used in the Rama report to support his conclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was written by Burton J. Wolf for the San Francisco Guardian. It was an article that debunked. Uh, any sort of possible satanic or ritual magic uh, involvement in early cases uh, in Minnesota in 71, uh, other upper Midwest cases in the early 70s. And he blamed the whole hysteria of UFO involvement uh, and Satanist to a radio broadcaster who happened to kind of crack a joke on the show saying, oh, these cows must be killed by, you know, have been killed by aliens and, and uh, or maybe black magicians. And he, Burton Wolf, goes to great lengths to disassociate any sort of potential occult involvement. Well, I happened to do a search on him and found out that he is an avowed occultist and, and actually wrote the introduction to Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, sometimes 
when somebody writes a story and, and, and touts a particular line of, of rationale or reasoning, I think it, it behooves us to maybe check into their particular uh, potential motivations and, and their biases. And, mm-hmm. and this, again, this article, uh, which you know basically said this was all just an accident, uh, it's all media-induced hysteria, and that there are no uh, cases that feature any sort of ritual sign, which is not true. There are plenty of them. Uh, that uh, you know, the guy is an avowed Satanist, and, and actually wrote the introduction to the Satanic Bible. I just, I, when I discovered that, I went, "Oh man, what a <laughs> what That's a lucky find!" Crazy. <laughs> now, the Satanist aspect. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, they talk about that a lot. A lot of people say, oh, that's all that is. Of course, uh, the mutilations are too abundant, I think, it seems, for that to be the only answer. Oh, uh, and in fact, at least from what I have seen, I haven't seen any cases that, that came out to be the case. But you're saying that has happened, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. there have been cases. I had a case where an animal was found mutilated. Uh, there was a, uh, a, a partly a mostly burnt candle uh, that had been burnt on the skull. The body parts were actually hanging from a branch of a tree in a bag. Uh, there were kind of ritual occult signs around the case. This happened uh, near La Magna Pass, uh, just north of Chama, New Mexico, right along the border with Colorado. Uh, there was some cases down at the Los Re- uh, the Trace Ritos Ranch, north of Cuesta, he lost in a 10-year period about 50 animals to the mutilators. The first couple of cases had what appeared to be uh, ritual altars and various types of sigils and, and occult sign around it. Hooded figures, uh, strange hooded figures carrying torches have been sighted uh, around mutilation wow. sites. Uh, there was a number of very interesting cases from Montana. Uh, one case, I think, from Idaho where a group of 15 to 20 hooded figures tried to stop traffic uh, and by by linking arms uh, and, and barricading roads into areas where where cases uh, were being discovered, uh, hooded figures along uh, the I twenty five corridor between uh, Walsenburg and Pueblo, hooded figures were seen uh, in Iowa. There were cases where uh, abandoned houses had been turned into uh, what appeared to be kind of I don't know maybe wannabe black magicians, and and this uh, was tied in by investigators into simulations in the area. So there, there are cases that, that are very suggestive of this type of activity. However, like you said, uh, you know, there's so much more evidence to, to refute that particular theory uh, as with all theories, but there is just enough of a tantalizing uh, body of evidence to suggest that there are potential occultists that uh, are involved in ritual blood sacrifice. And I think... Humans' uh, ancient practice of animal sacrifice may somehow be tied to this phenomenon or an aspect of it. Mm-hmm. That's pretty weird. So, Harrison Schmidt, I just think it's really interesting because he was a senator who was involved in, and he was really into this. I mean, he created well, he this conference. He was the last man on the moon. He was an astronaut right. that uh, was on the moon as a geologist. Was he satisfied with the Rommel report? No, not at all. In fact, he was, he was qu- uh, quite uh, uh, indignant about it because he knew darn well, the, you know, based on his interactions with the ranching community uh, over the prior two-year period, that there were real cases going on, and, and he, he felt that the, the Rama report was a complete whitewash. In fact, I, I do 
uh, reprint some quotes of his about the Rommel report and his uh, his displeasure over uh, you know such a, a, a just an offhand dismissal of the whole thing. And but uh, he did the conference uh, in Albuquerque in '79. Uh, to you know, to great political peril, and one of the things that helped beat him for re-election was the fact that he got involved in this subject in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is toxic, uh, a toxic subject. This isn't something that I bring up at cocktail parties, <laughs> right? Know? Right? Uh, yeah. You know, uh, it's it's just not something that uh, you know the average person even wants to think about, let alone hear somebody that maybe knows something about it uh, discuss it. So. You know, sometimes those areas of our culture that that are kind of hidden away in the closet uh, tend to be the areas where we may have uh, quite a bit of, of data and information and evidence uh, to look at. One thing about UFOs is they rarely leave behind any sort of evidence, whether it's, you know, uh, landing traces, uh, any sort of uh, residual effects in the environment or, you know, really good quality photographs uh, in, in film and in video is, is very rare, regardless of what you think uh, looking online. vast majority of what you see online are hoaxes or, or misidentified uh, lens flares, that sort of mm. thing. So, so you know, with, with the, the animal death phenomenon, you've got thousands of pounds of physical evidence. Uh, there's no denying that. And, uh, you know, people generally when it comes to, to cattle, the only thing they want to know is that thing's on a piece of styrofoam wrapped in plastic in their supermarket. They do not <laughs> want to know how it got there. They don't want to know about yeah. uh, the feedlots and the horrific conditions that are in feedlots and all the, the additives and, and hormones and, and you know antibiotics that are pumped into these animals and how you know people wonder why little girls are uh, getting into puberty at eight or nine years old. Uh, you know, this is a real closet subject in our culture, and I think beef as a protein source is is eventually going to be uh, doomed. Uh, I don't think we're going to be able to continue uh, having cattle as a protein source. There's too many cattle on the planet. They're the largest source of freshwater pollution, the largest uh, cause of the creation of deserts, the single biggest reason why we're cutting down the rainforest to make room for more cattle. They're one of the largest... Uh, you know, contributors to ozone-depleting gas. A cow's burp and fart once every minute and a half, two minutes, and 1.37 billion cattle burping and farting is a lot of methane. It's hundreds and thousands of tons of methane that uh, is helping deplete the ozone layer. You know, you could go on and on. Some of the uh, pandemics, uh, rinderpest, hoof and mouth, anthrax, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mad cow disease. We haven't even started talking about that. I think that's right. a major, major issue. And this is kind of, you talk a lot about this kind of thing in your last chapter. So you do you draw a conclusion to all of these things you're mentioning now, uh, kind of where we're learning all of these these um, unsustainability, you know, issues um, with uh, using meat as a protein. Do you draw a connection to the, the mutilation phenomena? Yes, I do. Absolutely. Um, you know, David Perkins uh, came up with a, uh, several very interesting theories over the years. The first one in 79 was the environmental monitoring theory. He noticed that areas of high incidence for mutilations uh, were downwind and downstream of anywhere we, we played around with uranium, whether we mined it, weaponized it, used it in power plants, put it in missiles, uh, you know, anywhere downstream or downwind of these facilities generally is where you're going to find large numbers of mutilation cases. So he early on came up with that correlation, and then he's come up with others as well. And one theory that he has is that, 
you know, there's a possibility that the, the collective unconscious is aware collectively how detrimental to our, our you know, the, the sanctity of our environment, how, how bad cattle are for the planet, and that possibly we are manifesting some of these mutilation cases as, as almost a form of, of collective cultural stigmata. Of course, stigmata is developing the wounds of Christ uh, as a spontaneous manifestation of faith. There's St. Francis, Padre Pio. There's been a number of uh, stigmatists over the years that have been fairly well documented. And uh, he, he almost equates some of these cases as possibly being due to uh, you know, instant manifestation of a cultural angst or a cultural, uh, you know, sort of trying to warn ourselves off of, of continuing to utilize uh, uh, beef uh, as a protein source. Mm -hmm. That's what's great, too. I mean, with all of these brilliant minds coming together, uh, all of these really interesting theories that are just as plausible, uh, really, as any other, because it's so enigmatic and so uh, supernatural. I mean, something yeah. so strange. Yeah. Some of the cases are just totally bizarre. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had the one, the, the one case, uh, this... Well, the case up on the, the the Sherman Ranch, the Skinwalker Ranch case, where the rancher and his wife were in the same field, uh, just a, a few hundred yards away when a calf was mutilated in broad daylight, and they heard or saw nothing. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you explain that? And they had a, a crack team of, of experts, a veterinary pathologist, a microbiologist, were all on site that that same afternoon. Mm -hmm. They flew up in a private jet you know, from Las Vegas and did a complete investigation uh, on the case. And, there's cases with uh, seven to ten minute windows where people are standing on the spot right near the animal that's then minutes later found mutilated. Um, a case where a huge, uh, you know, two thousand pound, you know, uh, bull was found inside an abandoned adobe shack, and even if it had walked in, it couldn't have fit through the doorway. Right. Now, how, now, how do you explain that? Yeah. Um, there, there are some very bizarre cases. Uh, I mentioned the nineteen. <laughs> Animals found yeah. in a huge uh, stock tank. That, that's got to be uh, that's got to be uh, up there on my all time mm -hmm. favorite list. Head scratcher, you know. So, would it be accurate to say then? It, it sounds like your take is more of not necessarily that there's any one answer, but it, more of an all of the above type of situation. I think there's multiple groups piggybacking their agenda. I think there's even cases where rich ranchers are trying to buy out other ranches and use mutilations to intimidate uh, mm. their, their neighbors. There's yeah. a number of very compelling cases that suggest that that humans have uh, used the mutilation phenomenon to further societal and political gains and, and uh, agendas. So, you know, it's very complex, and there's no, you know, we're, we see... During the 70s, certain types of cases. In the 80s, it changes. It morphs into other types of cases. In the 90s, it, it morphs again. And uh, in the 2000s, right at the end of a foot-and-mouth outbreak that was horrific down in South America, right as they were finally eradicating it, boom, you have this huge wave of thousands of mutilation cases over the next three, four years. And uh, I don't think that's by accident. Mm -hmm. You know, what about all these helicopter sightings? Uh, right, we didn't even get a touch on that. I did want to talk about it, but we are we don't have time for it. But there's, yeah. the book is just so full of, uh, I mean, I know people love the different stories, uh, hearing case studies and, and hearing about all of these incidents. And, of course, your book is chock full of that. Um, interesting theories. Uh, you've got everything in here, and uh, this is definitely the book for people interested in cattle mutilation, and I know there yeah. are a lot of people who are interested in cattle mutilation, so yeah. I'm really happy that we got a chance to talk about it. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm.
That's great. And say hello to John for me and the, and, uh, the girls and everybody, Jason, and, and uh, you know, onwards and upwards. Uh, sorry to hear about the magazine uh, kind of folding up shop. Uh, it was yeah. the best magazine out there, I thought. It's too bad that we, well, you couldn't you. have kept it going. Yeah, that, yeah that's uh, too bad. But we have the website, so and right. we've still got the podcast, and luckily right, there's of course. lots of great people such as yourself to talk yeah. to. So Yeah. Yeah, let's keep spacing out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, thanks so much. Okay, thank you so much for uh, talking to us, Chris O'Brien. And uh, you can check him out on his website at ourstrangeplanet.com. You can actually check him out also at the uh, publisher that we talked about, Adventures Unlimited Press, which is uh, where he works. So he's very involved with uh, Adventures Unlimited. So you can go to their website. And like we talked about during the show and the interview, lots of really important cool books that they have. Some of them are old ones that are out of print that he has got the rights to reprint. So you're going to want to check out Adventure Unlimited. They have a lot of cool stuff. And uh, you'll definitely want to talk, check out uh, Chris's book, uh, Stalking the Herd. So that is it for our show. Don't forget to check us out also on all of the top social and networking apps. We're on Twitter at Open Minds TV and on Facebook at Open Minds Radio and Open Minds Magazine. You can also find me personally on Twitter at AstroATR and Jason is at AceCentric and Maureen of Spacing Out. You can find her on Twitter too at Maureen Ellsbury and we are tweeting like crazy all the time so check us out. We're also Facebooking um, and you can just kind of search us by our names to find our Facebook. So we put all of our stories up there so you can keep up to date. You can also find all the stories that we talked about in the news section, of course, just by going to the website at openminds.tv, where we update you on the latest UFO news on a daily basis. And you can catch our UFO news webcast spacing out on our YouTube channel. So uh, you'll find this all at openminds.tv. Thank you so much to the artist who created our music, Caleb Hanks. And you can find out more about his music and download some of it for free at theclerkchronicles.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back with another great show next week. So until then, adios muchachos.